The focus in Matthew 6, 1-18 of the Sermon on the Mount has been upon the kingdom citizens' sacred responsibility in their private life, namely in the realms of giving, praying, and fasting. These righteous deeds are to be done in private and for God's glory. Beginning now in Matthew 6, 19, Jesus shifts to dealing with kingdom citizens' secular responsibilities in their public life. That is, how do we as believers publicly live and behave? Jesus will tackle issues such as wealth, judgment, perseverance, and interpersonal ethics. To the issue of sacred and secular, a bit of clarification must be given. Sacred refers to anything holy or godly, such as righteous deeds. Anything designated sacred is considered suitable for the church. Secular describes things that are not designated as holy or religious. Many Christians wrongly, I'll say it again, many Christians wrongly denote something secular as worldly or not Christian. The problem with the sacred-secular distinction for many is that they view the sacred as spiritual while dismissing the secular as unspiritual. Some believers wrongly dismiss the secular as unimportant to God. Others engage in a witch hunt against anything they deem as secular. In reality, the sacred and the secular are both spiritual for kingdom citizens. Yes, the scriptures do designate certain items as sacred or set apart. However, the scriptures do not relegate secular or non-sacred things as less spiritual than sacred. When believers view sacred as spiritual and secular as unspiritual, we are creating a false compartmentalization or false dichotomy. Consider the church and government. The church is a sacred institution set apart to worship the Lord and evangelize the lost. Government is a secular institution designed to uphold societal order and punish lawbreakers. Nonetheless, the church and government are both ordained by God as his ministers or servants. As such, they are to behave spiritually, but could behave unspiritually. For example, sacred church elders could act unspiritual, while the secular government authorities could act spiritually. See, my friends, the truth is that all things, whether sacred or secular, are equally important to God. According to Matthew 6, 4, 6, and 18, God the Father sees those sacred or religious deeds done in private. Matthew 6, 32 reveals that God the Father is also concerned with secular things such as your food, your drink, and your clothing. Indeed, as Ephesians 1.22 states, God has put all things, both sacred and secular, in subjection under Christ's feet. Again, that all things includes the sacred and the secular. Indeed, sacred things can be used in an unspiritual manner. For example, if you give and pray or fast to be seen by people, you have used something sacred unspiritually. As well, secular things can be used spiritually. For example, if you work in a secular job in a way that glorifies God, you're using the secular in a spiritual manner. Now, the principle determining whether the sacred or secular is used spiritually is found in Colossians 3.23 and 1 Corinthians 10.31. Colossians 3.23 declares, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. That is, whatever you engage in the sacred or in the secular, you are to devote all of your energy 
heartily to doing it to please the Lord Jesus. As 1 Corinthians 10.31 proclaims, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. All things, the sacred and the secular, are to be used to glorify God. As Jesus moves to speak upon our public responsibilities in the secular realm, he in turn switches from the hypocrisy of the religious to the materialism of the irreligious. Previously in Matthew 6, 2, 5, and 16, Jesus warned us not to give, fast, or pray like the religious Pharisees. Jesus now warns us in Matthew 6, 32 that the Gentiles eagerly seek all of these things. All of these things refers to materials, such as wealth, clothing, food, and drink. Believers are not to, de- to desire or pursue material things like the irreligious Gentiles. Now, Jesus begins his discourse upon the secular by addressing the issue of wealth and the kingdom citizen in Matthew 6, 19-24. He presents three different alternatives, two treasures, two conditions, and two masters. The chosen treasure, condition, or master determines whether the kingdom citizen handles their wealth properly or improperly. Now, regarding wealth and the kingdom citizen, Jesus sets forth two treasures, an earthly treasure and a heavenly treasure in Matthew 6, 19-21. Matthew 6, 19-21. It says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Again, Jesus sets forth two treasures, an earthly treasure and a heavenly treasure. He begins with a twofold command. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now the verb store up, the cerizo, means putting something aside for future use. Treasures, thesaurus, refers to accumulated wealth. Hence, Jesus is commending heavenly wealth and condemning earthly wealth. Now, it's necessary to define precisely what Jesus is not condemning in the prohibition against earthly wealth. First, the prohibition is not a ban on wealth. Deuteronomy 8.18 declares that it is God who gives you power to make wealth. As well, Proverbs 10.22 states, It is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. Furthermore, God has created all good things, such as wealth, to be enjoyed. As Paul exhorted Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.4 and 6.17, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, and God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Again, the prohibition is not a ban on wealth. Second, the prohibition is not forbidding saving your wealth. The prohibition is not forbidding saving your wealth. Solomon commented, referring to savings as an act of wisdom, in Proverbs 6, 6-8. He said, Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways, and be wise, which, having no chief officer or ruler, prepares her food in the summer, and gathers her provisions in the harvest. As well, in Proverbs 21, 5 and 20, Solomon says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. There is a precious treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man swallows it up. Furthermore, 
Savings is necessary to provide for the future needs of one's family. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.8, If anyone does not provide for his own family, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Failure to provide for your family is the equivalent of denying the faith or being an unbeliever. So having established what Jesus is not prohibiting, again, he's not prohibiting earthly wealth. He's not prohibiting saving your wealth. Let's consider then what he is prohibiting. Note the phrase, for yourselves, in the prohibition. Do not store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Jesus is prohibiting the selfish, covetous, and greedy accumulation of wealth. Selfish, covetous, and greedy accumulation includes luxurious living, foolish spending, and ignoring the poor and needy. Now, in response to someone requesting Jesus to, quote, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me, he replies in Luke 12, 15, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Now, while the person posing the question likely had a legal right to the inheritance, Jesus rebuked him because his desire for the inheritance was rooted in greed. Hence, Jesus admonishes us to be on guard against every form of greed. As well, he says that life is more than what we possess. Again, acquiring possessions is not evil, but as believers, as kingdom citizens, we must learn to be content with what we have. Consider the parable of the rich man in Luke 12. He was not content with what he had. And as such, out of greed and selfishness, he built bigger and bigger barns. Jesus declared in Luke 12, 20-21, that the discontent, greedy, selfish, who stores up treasures for himself, is not rich towards God. You see, the problem with earthly wealth is that it can be destroyed or stolen. Jesus provides three examples of earthly wealth's corruptible nature. He says that moth and rust destroy earthly wealth. As well, thieves break in and steal earthly wealth. You see, for some, wealth is invested in their clothing. Jesus warns that moths destroy aphanizo, that is, ruin clothing, leaving behind a worthless garment full of holes. Others invest their wealth in coins and jewelry. In the first century A.D., coins and jewelry were made of gold and silver. Rust, brosis, refers to the deterioration of metals by oxidation or chemical reactions. Gold can be corroded, silver can be tarnished. When gold corrodes and silver tarnishes, it loses value. Furthermore, in the first century A.D. world where banks were rare, people often stored their wealth in strong boxes buried beneath the floors of their homes. However, one's home offers little protection, as thieves could break in and steal clothes, money, and jewelry. You see, kingdom citizens, we need to invest in heavenly wealth. Heavenly wealth cannot be moth-eaten, corroded, tarnished, lose value, or be stolen. Interestingly, corrosion and tarnishing are sometimes the result of non-use. Some stash their wealth away out of greed and selfishness instead of putting it to use. And while stashed away, it loses its value and becomes worthless. Paul addresses such individuals in 1 Timothy 6, 17-19. He says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, 
to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. You see, using your earthly wealth to do good and to be generous, in turn stores up heavenly wealth. As Jesus declared to the rich young ruler in Matthew 19.21, Sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. As well, he said in Luke 12.33, Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. To those believers who refuse to care for those in need, the Apostle John questions whether God's love abides in them. In 1 John 3.17, he proclaims, Whoever has this world's good and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? So one way to invest earthly wealth into heavenly is to care for the needy. Now what are other ways in which we can store up heavenly wealth? Well, whenever we commit our earthly wealth to God's work, we have in turn invested in heavenly wealth. Supporting our local church, missionaries, or ministries are examples of using earthly wealth to invest in heavenly wealth. What if a believer is not financially wealthy? Friend, if God has not blessed you with financial wealth, there are other ways to make heavenly investments. Perhaps God has gifted you with the wealth of talent or a wealth of time. Believers who give to the needy, the church, missionaries, or ministries from their talent or their time are also investing in heavenly wealth, so long as their motivations are altruistic. Now, a word of warning. Believer, you must keep your giving private and secret. Anyone motivated to give for personal benefits, such as praise or even a tax deduction, forfeits any investment into a heavenly reward. Now, as an aside, there's nothing unethical with claiming a tax deduction, as long as the motive for giving was pure and genuine before God. In summary, Jesus reveals that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The heart, the cardia, refers to the seat or center of your emotions and desires. You see, the selfish, covetous, and greedy accumulation of earthly wealth reveals what you genuinely desire or love. As 1 Timothy 6.10 declares, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Those who love their wealth will in the end serve their wealth. Believers, we must evaluate which wealth we desire more. Ask yourself, what do you desire more, earthly wealth or heavenly wealth? Which is more important to you? The needs of others who lack basic necessities, or the accumulation of more beyond what is necessity. So regarding wealth in the kingdom citizen, Jesus set forth two treasures. And now he sets forth two conditions in Matthew 6, 22-23. Again, Matthew 6, 22-23. Let's read it. The eye is the lamp of the body, so that if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, and your whole body will be full of darkness. If then that the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Again, Jesus sets forth two conditions, light and darkness. He begins by stating the eye is the lamp of the body. A lamp, a luknas, is a small jar containing a wick filled with oil to provide light in a room. The term was used in Matthew 5.15. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. There Jesus used this term to symbolize how we are to reflect his light to everyone with whom we have contact. Describing the eye as a lamp, here in Matthew 6.22, refers to the first century A.D. understanding of how the eye worked. The belief was that sight occurred as light flowed from the eye to a particular object. 
The object in view reflected light from an external source such as the sun. As the light from the eyes merged with the light reflected from the object, the light flowed back to the eye and registered as sight. Now Jesus is not making a scientific statement about the eye. Instead, he's using their understanding of the eye as hyperbole about a person's capacity to detect what is around them. Ezra used the term lamp as hyperbole in Psalm 119.105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In other words, Ezra was making the point that as light illuminates a walkway, safely guiding someone along a path, so too the scriptures illuminates the believer's surroundings, safely guiding them in a world of darkness. Now, just as a lamp illuminates, Jesus describes the eyes as lamps because the eyes guide the hands and feet. Like a lamp, the eyes enable one to see what their hands do and where their feet go. Jesus' point is that anything someone does depends on their ability to see. As well, in the Hebrew culture, just as the heart refers to the seat of one's emotions, the eye, along with the ear, represents a person's inner thoughts or understanding. As Jeremiah 5.21 states, Now hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Regarding the eye or a person's inner thought, Jesus says it is either clear or bad. Ezra also used the heart and eye in the same fashion when he wrote Psalm 119, 6 and 7. When I look with the eye upon all your commandments, I will give thanks to you with the uprightness of heart. So using the first century idea of how sight works, it could be said that light entering the eyes affects a person's inner thoughts. Now Jesus says that the eye is either clear or bad. The term clear, haplus, conveys the idea of a healthy eye, but can also be used figuratively of singleness, sincerity, or integrity. The Septuagint uses haplotes, a cognate of haplus, to translate the Hebrew term yoser for or integrity. For example, 1 Chronicles 29, 17 states, I know, O oh my God, that you try the heart and delight in uprightness. I have integrity of, ha- of heart. I have yoser or haplotes of heart. Using haplotes to render the Hebrew idea of yoser or integrity carried over into, the, into Paul's epistles. For example, in Colossians 3.22, Paul urges servants to be obedient to their masters with sincerity of heart or with integrity of heart. Hence, when Jesus says the eye is clear, he invokes a bit of wordplay. On the one hand, Jesus refers to the eye as healthy. On the other hand, the eye is single or sincere. In essence, a healthy eye is a sincere eye or an eye set only upon God. As well, there appears to be a bit of interplay between Jesus' statement about one's heart and eye. Previously, in verse 21, Jesus urged us as kingdom citizens to determine what our heart is set upon, earthly or heavenly wealth. Believers, as well, cannot be double-hearted or double-minded. They must have singleness of heart. That is, our heart is either set fully on earthly wealth or fully on heavenly wealth. There is no middle ground. And so, too, Believers, we cannot have double vision. We must have single vision or a single eye. That is an eye sincerely set upon what matters to God. So how is your heart? How is your eye? Is your eye set solely on God? Or are there other things vying for your attention? Is your heart set solely on heavenly treasures? Or is your heart divided? Only when our eye is fully set upon God can our hands do what is pleasing to God and our feet go where God is pleased.
Now conversely, if a clear eye is healthy, a bad eye, a Panera's eye, is diseased. A diseased eye cannot see clearly. More to the point, the term Panera's means evil or wicked. In Deuteronomy 15, 9, Yahweh warns, Beware that there is not base thoughts in your heart, and your eye is hostile toward your brother. Not only is there a connection here again between the heart and the eye, but the term hostile refers to an evil eye. Contextually, the evil eye here is an eye filled with contempt towards the poor. An evil eye is also one that is selfish. Proverbs 23, 6 and 7 commands, Do not eat the bread of a selfish man. His heart is not with you. In Hebrew, selfish man, ra-ayin, is literally evil eye. Thus, an evil eye is one that is selfish. Also note the relationship between the heart and eye again. An evil eye can also refer to an eye focused upon greed. Proverbs 8.22 warns, A man with an evil eye hastens after wealth. The verb hastens, bahal, implies that the man is envious or greedy and anxiously seeks riches. Therefore, a bad or diseased eye is one filled with contempt for the poor, selfishness, and greed. Jesus uses the example of the healthy eye and the diseased eye to present two conditions, light and darkness. Light refers to a proper perspective on wealth. Darkness refers to an improper perspective on wealth. The healthy eye presents someone whose inner thoughts are sincerely focused upon God. Is your eye healthy? To those, Jesus says, your whole body will be full of light. Again, Jesus is referencing his hearer's understanding of the eye's operation. A healthy eye allows light to reflect into the eye. My friends, if your focus on wealth is viewed through the lens of God's glory, then you will see clearly the true purpose of the wealth God has granted you. Now, the diseased eye represents someone blinded by greed, selfishness, and contempt for the poor. To those, Jesus says, your whole body will be full of darkness. A blind eye cannot detect light. If light cannot flow into the eye, the individual is left groping around in the dark. In other words, friend, if you view wealth through the lens of greed, selfishness, and contempt for the poor, your focus on wealth is evil. Remember, in the Hebraic culture, the eye represents understanding. As Psalm 82.5 declares, They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. That is, the blind eye lacks understanding. Because you do not understand, you walk in darkness. Next, Jesus warns, If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Jesus used this same illustration in Luke 11. However, he adds more clarification. In verse 34 and 35 of Luke 11, Jesus says, then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illuminated, as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. You see, the reality, friends, is there is darkness in all of us, even those of us filled with light. Hence, we must acknowledge our blindness, and we must depend on God's estimation of wealth as revealed in His Word to inform our decision-making. As Proverbs 3, 5-6 states, Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. That verb, make straight, translate yeshar, a cognate of yosha, referring to sincerity or integrity. See, when God, my friend, He will lead you into integrity, especially in the realm of wealth, when you acknowledge your blindness and your dependency upon Him. And so, regarding wealth and the kingdom citizen. Jesus has set forth two treasures, two conditions, and now he sets forth two masters in Matthew 6, verse 24. 
Matthew 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Kingdom citizens, we must choose between the two masters, because no one can serve two masters. The verb serve, duleo, means to be a slave. It derives from the root term doulos, or servant. The term master, curios, refers to a ruler, lord, or owner. Now, to properly exegete the scriptures here, dealing with servitude or slavery, it's necessary to understand the issue of slavery in the Roman Empire. Slavery in the Roman Empire cannot be viewed through the lens of slavery in the United States. There are several critical distinctions between slavery in the United States and slavery within the Roman Empire. To begin with, in the Roman Empire, people were not enslaved based on ethnicity. Some were enslaved because they were prisoners of war. Many, however, placed themselves into slavery, creating an employment relationship with their masters. It was how one made a living during the first century A.D. Also, enslaved people were granted many legal rights, including marrying, having a family, and owning property. Slaves in the Roman Empire were well-educated, served in various specialized jobs such as doctors, teachers, musicians, and artists. With the help of their masters, enslaved people could purchase their freedom through manumission, most, if not all, enslaved people were emancipated by the age of 30. Once emancipated, enslaved people became citizens, and their former masters acted as their patrons to help them transition into independent living. Often, enslaved people became wealthier than their former masters. Now, with a proper understanding of the contextual use of slavery, consider again Jesus' warning. No one can serve two masters. The term masters of which Jesus speaks, is God and wealth. You cannot serve God and wealth. Wealth, mamonas, refers to an abundance of prosperity, possessions, and property. By stating no one can serve two masters, Jesus confirms there's no middle ground. You're either enslaved to God or enslaved to earthly wealth. No one can serve God on Sundays and their wealth on other days. Jesus explains that he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. Note the four verbs, hate, love, devoted to, and despise. These four verbs underscore the impossibility of serving two owners, two rulers, two lords, two masters. Now, verse 24 follows a unique pattern. The first and last statements are parallel. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and wealth. The dual explanation for why one cannot serve two masters creates what's called a chiastic structure. Now, a chiastic structure is a pattern that's formed by paralleling key words or phrases. In this case, hate and despise are parallel, and love and devotion are parallel. And the pattern in the text uh, forms the Greek letter chi, which appears as an X. So, draw an X. And the chi, or the x, you'll notice has four points intersecting where the two lines cross. So again, draw an x. On the left-hand, top left corner, write the word hate. On the bottom right-hand corner, write despise. On the top right-hand corner, write love. On the bottom right left-hand corner, bottom left-hand corner, write devote. So you're either going to hate and despise, or you're going to love and devote. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God or wealth. 
Now again, if someone attempts to exegete this text through the lens of United States history, they're going to find difficulty. While certainly no one would question a slave having or despising an enslaver, loving or being devoted to a slave owner would be a difficult pill to swallow. However, through the lens of Roman Empire history, it becomes clear how an enslaved person could love and be devoted to their master. How could they not love someone who helped emancipate them and act as their patron? Now, the verb hate, maseo, means to disfavor or disregard someone. Despise, kataphroneo, is to scorn or look down upon someone. Who or what do you disfavor or scorn? God or wealth? Love, agapeo, is a self-sacrificing love. Devoted to, enteco, means to give oneself entirely to someone or something. Believer, are you willing to sacrifice for God or for your wealth? To whom have you given yourself, God or wealth? You see, for believers, the choice should be simple. We should choose God because He is a loving Master. Anyone who chooses wealth over God does not choose God because He is unloving. They choose unwisely because their heart was never with God. Their eyes are blinded by greed, selfishness, and contempt for the needy. My friends, I warn you, if you choose to love one's wealth, it is going to be problematic because, as 1 Timothy 6.10 says, the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. That phrase, love of money, philagoria, is an affection for silver. It refers to the coveting of money. And coveting is a clear violation of the 10th commandment. You shall not covet, Exodus 20, verse 17. Those who covet after wealth will, in the end, serve their wealth. Furthermore, Sacrificially giving yourself over to abundant wealth will result in all sorts, all kinds of evil. That word kakan is morally questionable behavior. You want to know why people give into morally questionable behavior? It's because they're not serving God. They're serving something else. Sadly, serving wealth does not end there. First Timothy 6, 9-10 further reveals that those, quote, who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Some by longing for it, that is wealth, wander away from the faith and pierce themselves with many griefs. Friends, beware. Serving wealth does not result in satisfaction but sin. It promises health. But it ends in hurt. Serving wealth does not end in freedom, but in bondage. My friend, you may think you're choosing whom you're serving, but I got news for you. In reality, you're not making any kind of choice. See, at the moment of salvation, Jesus became your Savior and Lord. As Savior, He redeems you from the curse of sin and damnation in the lake of fire. And as Lord, He purchased you from the slave market of sin. He is your ruler. He is your owner. By default, you're already his bondservant. Hence, the choice is made. But when you foolishly choose your earthly wealth, you are scorning and disregarding the God who redeemed and purchased you. If that is you, my friend, I'd challenge you. Repent and make it right with God. With the two treasures, you're given a choice to either invest in earthly or heavenly wealth. The two eye conditions present you with a choice of how to view your wealth. Are you going to view it through the lens of greed, selfishness, and contempt? Or are you going to view it through the lens of God's glory? And finally, the two masters give you a seemingly third choice of who you will serve, God or wealth. Remember, my friends, wealth is a blessing from God to use for His glory.
if we use it, if we use our wealth greedily or selfishly, we will pay a hefty price. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you through Jesus' sacrificial work. And we praise you because you are a God of all, the God of heavens, the God of earth, the God of the air, the God of the sea. We come to you as servants, seeking to use our wealth for your glory. Father, we confess that our flesh is weak. Too often we have a wrong view of wealth. And we are blind. And we acknowledge, because of that blindness, our dependency upon you. Forgive us, Lord, because we are selfish. Forgive us because we are greedy. Forgive us when we have contempt for the poor. Keep us, Lord. Keep us away from that trap of material wealth. Keep us from serving the things of this world. Help us to serve you as our only true master, the one who gave his life for us. To you we give all the praise. We pray. Amen.